Good morning, everyone. Let's, let's take a minute to pray uh, before we even go any further. Father, thank you for this gift. Lord, in spite of all of the craziness that is going on throughout the week, even this morning with the crazy weather, we are grateful that we get to gather, that we as imperfect people get to gather around the perfect Savior. And we ask that as we get ready to do this and as we get ready to open your word, that you would give us clarity in our understanding. Lord, help us to, to focus. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Lord, help us to slow down. Lord, our, our society is constantly going, constantly going. Help us to slow down and rejoice in what Christ has done. Lord, we know we're not the only ones who gather around the gospel this morning. We are grateful for that. The task is too big for us. We're grateful for other faithful churches. Think of a church plant over in Galloway, Redemption Hill Church. Lord, we pray for fruit, that you would bless them as they get started. We pray for Salt and Light Church downtown. Lord, we are grateful for their faithful presence and their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel in a difficult area. Lord, we pray for Northwest Presbyterian Church up in Dublin. Thank you for their consistent faithfulness to exalt Christ. Now, Lord, as we get ready to look at this passage, we ask, Holy Spirit, that by your grace, you would help us to understand what's said, that you would give me clear speech, that Christ, you would be magnified, that we would see you clearly in the text. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Rob, and I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. And if you've been around me outside of church for more than, I don't know, 10 minutes in the last few weeks, you've probably heard me talk about Downton Abbey because I am a huge evangelist for Downton Abbey right now. Never thought I would like this show. And my beautiful wife, she seemed to really like it, heard a couple guys that I respect say that they liked it and thought, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a try. And by the third episode, like, I was hooked. And so we have been cruising through Downton Abbey, and there's a few things that I love about it. It's just in a very sim- much simpler time. I'm sure there's a lot more complexity than what I give it credit for. But from where I sit, looking back on it, it looks like a much simpler time. And I love the fact that they can try to communicate, and they, they write a letter, right? And like, oh, I'll hear from them in two weeks. Like, it's, everything's instantaneous right now. Text messages, emails, whatever. It's so nice to think, oh, I'll write a letter, hear from them in a couple weeks. We'll, we'll wait and see. So, like, the, the simplicity of it is great. One of the things that it, I also notice, because um, just where we are in the episodes, is that there's very little talk of divorce. Just in that time, it just didn't happen as often. It was, they had a higher uh, priority, higher value on your, your word. So, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That was taken very seriously. Also, just culturally speaking, it, it wasn't as acceptable. So you don't see it as much, and as we've been going through it, we're now starting to see some talks about it because it takes place in the early, ni- or early 20th century, so the early 1900s. And so now we see a little bit of talks about it. And I looked up some divorce rates for that time, and in the early 1900s, divorce was almost non-existent. Like less than 5% um, of marriages ended up in divorce. And then as we continue to move 
forward into the 20th century, those rates go up and they peak in the 80s to about 50%. And then by God's grace, um, they've come down a little bit since then to roughly around 39%, which praise God for that. Now, one of the things that we see, even going from less than 5% to 39%, is that there's still a dramatic increase. And part of that is because just with all the things that are going on in our um, culture, society, we, we just have shorter attention spans. There's all kinds of studies that have been done. I'm just trying to look some of these up. And they said that the average attention span of an adult is anywhere from 8 to 12 seconds right now. Probably start thinking about something else. And so our attention spans have minimized. So when you get into a difficult situation, it's easy to look to the next thing. Look to the next thing, and there's all kinds of resources, all kinds of articles to justify any position that you land on. And so with us being able to easily justify our decisions and us having shorter attention spans, we see how maybe when things get difficult in a covenant relationship, that it might be easy just to look to something else and to, to justify our reasons for doing that. So as we look at this text, we saw marriage, we saw divorce, and so we'll tap into that. Um, but it is worth noticing that we are the adulterous people. We are the adulterous people in this text. And if we could summarize today's sermon, I would do it in this sentence. Say, because we're an adulterous people, we must hold fast to a faithful Savior. Because we are an adulterous people, we must hold fast to a faithful Savior. As we look at it, I hope that we will see some principles for living faithfully as a disciple, how to hold fast to a faithful Savior. We'll also see God's design for, for marriage and gender as the text touches on that. So last week we were in Mark, and this week we continue to be in Mark. We looked at chapter 9, verses 42 through 50 last week, and we saw the importance of fighting sin. So that to, to live at peace with one another, we must relentlessly fight sin. And now this week, we're continuing in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, that is in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then we are in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have your Bibles, you can see it in your bulletin. The text is printed for you in there. Now there are three things that I want us to see in this passage. Because what's happening is in chapter 10, Jesus is inching closer to Jerusalem. And we know Jerusalem is where he is ultimately crucified. And so as he gets closer to his crucifixion, he's getting more explicit in what discipleship is. What does it mean to follow me? He knows that he's not always going to be there. And so now he's getting more tangible. He's getting more detailed into what discipleship looks like. He's talking to his disciples. And in chapter 10, three big things that he touches on are marriage, children, and possessions. In this text, we see marriage. Now, if we are to be faithful disciples of Jesus, because that's what he's telling his disciples, he's trying to get more explicit so that they would be faithful even when he is gone. If we are to be people who hold fast to a faithful Savior, there are three things that I believe we must receive, and I believe the text shows us that. The first is that we must receive God's teaching. Second is that we must receive God's design. And the third is that we must receive God's faithfulness, his teaching, his design, and his faithfulness. So let's look at that first 
point, hopping right in there. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus previously has been going through the region of Galilee. He's doing all kinds of miraculous things, been calling disciples to himself and healing people. And now he's gone from the Capernaum, Galilee area up north. He's making his way down south because that's where Jerusalem is. And so now as he inches closer, as he inches closer to Jerusalem, gets closer to the suffering and the death that he predicted in Mark 8 and 9 and that he will later predict in this chapter, chapter 10, we see crowds gathering, which is pretty par for the course when it comes to Jesus and his teaching. People see his miraculous signs, people hear him, and people want to witness more of it. And so again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now Matthew 19 has a parallel passage. So as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that there are different accounts of different events. Sometimes they're talking about the same event from different angles. Matthew 19, from a different angle, doesn't say that he taught them. It says that he healed them. Matthew Henry, commenting on this, he says, his teaching, which we see in Mark's account right here, was healing, which we see in Matthew's account. His teaching was healing to poor souls. His cures were to confirm his doctrine. So as he taught to confirm what he was teaching, these miraculous signs happened. And so if someone was sitting there and trying to write down what's going on, one might say, he taught them. Another person, Matthew, might say, he healed them. Both would be true. And Matthew Henry points out that his teaching was healing to poor souls. As he taught them, he confirmed what he was teaching by doing these miraculous signs. And so this morning, as we gather around the word, as Jesus is presented to us this morning, we ask ourselves, are we students like the crowd that gathered around him? Like the crowd, we must receive his healing. We must receive his teaching. So the natural question, how do we do that? We see in the text that they're gathering around him. See in the text that he taught them, according to Matthew, he healed them. So how, how do we receive his teaching the way that they did? How do we receive Christ's teaching? So we have to ask that question individually. Are we, are we spending time individually in the word? Do we have set aside time each day to be with our Savior. Now, also, as groups, are we getting together and reading the word with one another? We should, discipleship is oftentimes peer-to-peer. Hey, brother, let's, let's read through 1 Corinthians together. Let's read through Mark together. Let's read through Leviticus together. Help me understand. One of, the, one of the things that was most beneficial for me just in my spiritual growth was when guys would say, hey, let's gather, and we'll, we'll meet once every couple weeks. We would go to Panera, and we went, went through 1 Corinthians. And the whole objective was each time we gather, we were going to review one chapter in Corinthians, and we were expected to bring 25 observations. Just 25 things you notice in the passage. It doesn't have to be anything particularly deep, just 25 things that we notice. And it blew me away how much I grew just by studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And you can do that with any book. All scripture is profitable. But just looking at a text, 
with other brothers, other sisters, seeing what observations they bring to the table, and then doing some peer-to-peer discipleship. That's one way that we can receive Christ's teaching. Another way is within the family unit. So family devotions. Men, are you leading your families to be in the Word? Are you checking in on your wife? Wives, are you checking in on your husbands? Asking, how, how are you doing? How's your soul? If there are children, are you making it a point to try to share them or get them in the Word, maybe read a little passage? This is something that we're trying to figure out in our household. We are certainly not perfect at it, but I'll, I'll say this. This week was one of the most encouraging weeks when it comes to that, um, that thing that we're striving for of trying to disciple our children. Finley is three and a half, okay? And someone shared this, this app. It's called New City Catechism. So if you haven't heard of it, just type in New City Catechism into the app. There's a, uh, it's a whole uh, thing of questions and answers, questions to ask and answers that are faithful to the text. Now, one of the great things about the New City Catechism, because that's what a catechism is, just questions and answers. One of the great things about this app is that it has a song that sings the question and the answer, and it's geared towards children. And so probably for the last, I don't know, year, whenever we get in the car, not every time, but oftentimes, I'll play this, these songs, and we've only been through like the first six or seven, and there's like 50 of them. Okay, so we're going through this slow, and we have gone over the third song probably over 100 times. And the last year... Zero fruit. <laughs> Finley has not caught on. This week, this week, there's question three. It says, how many persons are there in God? And the song says there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this week, we're driving down, and I, we start playing it. And she says, she wants to play it again. And before I do, I said, what's the song? She said, which one? Which, like, which song do you want me to play again? She's like, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, you, you're getting it. And so the whole day I'm asking her, like, hey, how many persons are there in God? She said, three persons and one God. Like, this whole thing. I'm so stoked. Like, this is actually, but look, if you're trying to lead your family in family devotions and you're trying to get them to start grasping onto things, you're not going to see results. Maybe you will. Maybe you're like the, the, the Yoda of family discipleship. I am not. Okay, so it took over a year to see her to get one thing, but it's super encouraging. Super encouraging. So lead your families to get into the word. If you're a non-Christian this morning and you want to know what Jesus, some of Jesus' teaching is, I would encourage you, in the back, we have these books. I would encourage you to pick up this book. What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert? Real quick, very short, less than 100 pages. No, I lied, 124 pages. But they're very short, very small pages. Pick up that book. If you're, if you're not a believer, but you're wanting to know what Jesus' teaching is, usually we rent out those books. Like, you can just keep it. Just take that book, mark it up, get into it. But, all that to say, as a church, we are centered around the Word of God because we see that Jesus' teaching is what brings healing. So that's why we as a church want to be Word-centered. That's why we as a church in the fall are trying to roll out some classes to help us to dig a little bit deeper into what the text says. So, that first point, we must receive Jesus' teaching. Now, the question, and the text unpacks it for us, is what was Jesus teaching on? 
So that's what we see here in our second point. Receive God's design. So in order to be a faithful disciple, as Jesus is going closer to Jerusalem, he's laying these things out more explicitly. So we must receive his teaching. Second thing is we must receive his design. So like clockwork, typical, Jesus starts teaching, crowds start gathering, and what do we see? Pharisees. Pharisees are on the scene. We see in verse 2, in order to test him, the Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew 19, that parallel passage, adds at the end of that, for any cause. So it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Matthew adds, for any cause, which isn't terribly surprising that for any cause would be tacked on there. Because if you look at the geography of where Jesus is teaching, he's in the same area as Herod Antipas, which in Mark 6, we saw divorced his wife because he wanted to marry Herodias. And so the Pharisees are now saying, hey, is it lawful for someone to divorce their wife for no reason? The ruler of this area seemed to do that. So Jesus, why don't you publicly say whether or not that is lawful? Now, Pharisees are clever. They're trying to scheme a little bit. At that time, there were two schools of thought. When it came to divorce, there was a more conservative school that said for adultery only. And then there was a more liberal school that said for any reason. Now, Herod, the ruler of that area, sided with this school. Divorced his wife so he could marry Herodias. Now, the Pharisees, trying to trap Jesus, as the text says, by asking him this question, knowing the region that they're in, knowing the debate between these two schools, the Pharisees are saying, however he answers, one of those schools is going to be upset with him. More people against Jesus. But if he answers in line with the conservative school, then also the ruler of the area is going to be upset with him. And if that's the case, the last person who spoke out against Herod's unlawful marriage was John the Baptist. And he ended up getting beheaded. So the Pharisees are like either, if he, if, however he answers, either more people, the conservative school or the liberal school, more people are going to be against him. But if he answers a certain way, then not only more people, but his life may be in danger. This may be our opportunity to get rid of this guy. So Jesus, how does he respond? He responds with scripture. He says, what did Moses command you? What did Moses say? How did Moses approach this? The one who provided the law, which, how, how, what did he say to you? And they respond with scripture as well. Now they twist it a little bit, but they say Moses allowed us to divorce, to give her a certificate and to send her away. So quick point for us, application point, that when we are tempted, we must respond with scripture, but it, it's not enough just to respond with scripture. Because the Pharisees twisted scripture in the same way that Satan twisted scripture when he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And so it's not enough just to respond with scripture because scripture may be thrown back at you. But then when we see Jesus, he responds again with scripture. He's saturated with it. He doesn't just know a one-off verse, but he knows the overarching story. He knows what's going on. And so he's able to notice when things are twisted. And so he responds again with scripture, we see in verse 5, he says this. 
because of your hardness of heart. So he points out their hardness of heart, what they're doing. Because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus responds with scripture. He doesn't just respond with scripture. He responds with God's initial design at the beginning, with creation. It says that in the beginning, God made them male and female. Divorce was not part of God's initial design. He made male, he made female. Think about it. If Adam and Eve had a fight one day and said, you know what, I'm done. We're getting a divorce. There's no one else there to marry. God's initial design was for them to be intimately woven together and to never separate. There wasn't even the option for it because there weren't other men and women in the garden. Now, I also want to caveat that scripture does provide two biblical grounds for divorce. We're not going to take a deep dive into these for sake of time, but it's sexual immorality, as we see in Matthew 19, and then abandonment, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, each of those case-by-case basis, what exactly is abandonment? What exactly falls under the umbrella of sexual immorality? That is another talk for another time. But I want to be clear that although divorce was not God's initial design, was not his intention when it comes to marriage, there are biblical grounds for it. Now, what was God's intended design? Well, we already talked about for marriage that it's one man, one woman, holding fast to one another rather than anyone else. That holding fast intimates that they are very close. If you hold someone fast, hug them, squeeze real tight, you're holding them fast. The image that is given for marriage is that this man and this woman would would hold fast to one another. It also shows that it's not to anyone else. They're holding fast to one another. No one else in there. And then we also see God's intended design for gender. Hot topic for today. And so God, in the beginning, created them male, and he created them female. We see that God's beautiful design for gender is the two genders of male and female working together in a complementarian way in that each gender helps or complements the other in their work with the garden. Recognize that God, as he was creating, said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the first thing that he says is not good. He needed a suitable helper. And so God created woman. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the dynamic and the dance of gender relations are different for every relationship, but there is something that God has put into men to be leaders and protectors and providers, and something that God has put into women to love that, delight in that, honor that, come alongside that, use all their manifold gifts to advance the cause of Christ through that, so that when they are together, they are complementing each other. And the beauty of God is displayed more fully. Men and women, God's design, operating as biblical men and women, shows more of God's beauty than if we were in our own respective silos. 
by seeing women act as biblical women and men act as biblical men, we get a fuller picture of who God is and how beautiful he is. So Christian, this morning, don't let the present day, don't let the news, don't let the loudest voices in society define who you are. Let God define who you are. Find your identity in Christ. Men, be biblical men. Be masculine. We had a sermon night at Jonathan Fagan's where a few of us come over and we just watch a talk or a sermon. And if you're not on his email list, he will add you to that. He has everybody. So get on that. It, it was really good. But we, we talked about biblical fatherhood. And one of the things that the speaker mentioned was what is a masculine father? And he defined masculinity this way. It's not a perfect definition, but I like it. He says, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Notice that in the text we see, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. We see a man taking the first step of leadership, taking the first step of responsibility. He's the one who leaves his father and mother. And then women, be godly women. Pursue biblical femininity. Not how culture defines it, but how the Bible defines it. Abigail Dodds, who has written on this, she says, God's design outlined in the scriptures is a vision for womanhood that is not just right and to be obeyed. It is experientially better than all the world has to offer. And it doesn't just apply to those who are married or mothers. Single women of any age are meant for full godly womanhood. And here is what she's getting at. She says, to be a mother in the deepest sense, that is spiritually nurturing and growing all God has given her. Women have an ability that supersedes that of men to nurture and to cultivate. And we are, women, you are called to nurture and to cultivate spiritual intimacy with God in yourselves and with others. John Piper and Wayne Grudem put it this way. They said, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. What they're getting at is that women cultivate and nurture godliness around them. Women, this is awkward enough for me as a man to be saying this, but women, you have the responsibility to tell men to act like godly men. The way godliness goes forward, the way that biblical masculinity goes forward, healthy biblical manhood goes forward is with strong biblical women telling the men to act like men, to be biblical men. We need you. You're indispensable. Apart from you, we get into all kinds of trouble. And when it comes to gender again, I want to recognize that gender dysphoria is a real thing. Okay, I'm not here up, up here to affirm all of the different claimed genders, but there is a real thing where people can be confused about their gender. We should be patient with them. We should love them. We should care for them. We should point them back to God's design and affirm that. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I would encourage you to talk with me. Talk with anyone else here. Don't feel like you have to walk in that alone. Families, as we look at God's design for marriage and we look at God's design for gender, are we modeling 
a healthy family, a healthy marriage to our children? Are we teaching them the beauty of complementary roles? Are we teaching them about gender? I did not expect to have to have those conversations with my three-year-old, but we're already trying to say, what does it look like for you to be a woman? Awkward conversations, but conversations that need to be had because I am the one who's called to lead her. Danielle is the one who's called to lead her. We have a unique responsibility that God has given to us and only to us to have these deep conversations with them. Church, if you have any, wanted to look into this further, there's a good book, that, again, in the back. I guess it's just like book advertisement day. But Kevin DeYoung, Men and Women in the Church, would encourage you to check that out. Okay, going along on that second point. So, to be faithful disciples, we must receive God's teaching. We must receive God's design. And then last, we see here, we must receive God's faithfulness. Look with me in verses 10 through 12. So after all this takes place, after Jesus teaches on divorce and marriage and what the original creation design was, later they're in a house, and we see in verse 10, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we see that when there's a disunity, when they sever the relationship and pursue another covenant partner, that is biblically defined as adultery. Now we've already caveated that there are biblical grounds for divorce. But outside of those, if you leave your covenant partner to pursue another one, scripture calls that Adultery, severing the unity with your covenant partner. Now the truth, this morning, which we already alluded to in the beginning, but the truth is that we have severed that unity with our covenant partner, God. We are adulterous people. We have gone after other partners. Calvin says that our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly creating new things to go after. And every time we seek a different covenant partner, Scripture calls that adultery. Another word for it would be idolatry, seeking after something other than Christ. We have been adulterous people. We have divorced ourselves from our covenant partner. We've broken the covenant that we were meant for. Now, the good news is that Christ has never been adulterous. Christ has always been faithful. He did not break the covenant. He never has broken the covenant. He never will break the covenant. And Jesus, as a man, fully God, fully man, he comes in the flesh. This is why it's so important for us to hold to the fact that he was fully man, because he represents mankind. And so if he's representing mankind, and if he's perfectly faithful in the covenant, then that means he has inherited perfect intimacy with the Father. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ receives that perfect intimacy with the Father. We receive his righteousness. We receive his faithfulness. We are adulterous, but Christ is not. We are adulterous, but God is not. He has been faithful to his people, which is why we must, as followers of Jesus, live lifestyles of repentance. We must consistently recognize the sin that is in our own hearts and confess them to God. God, I've been unfaithful. I've gone after other things. 
I'm coming back. Forgive me. He is quick to forgive. He is eager to forgive. He will not withhold forgiveness. He will not withhold it because it's already been purchased. Not by you, but by his son. If you're not a Christian in here, I would encourage you to consider the ways that maybe you have been adulterous towards God, the way you have gone after other things, whether that's career or status or material, whatever it is. Maybe you're in this room and you've experienced a partner going after another. You've experienced the pain of a covenant partner breaking the marriage covenant. I don't have enough words um, up here, but what I would say, try to encourage you with, is that God will never leave you or forsake you. He is faithful. Find your satisfaction in him. Talk with others about some pain that you might be experiencing because we just saw at the beginning of the sermon that their divorce is a real thing. We've seen it. We can all point to people in our lives who've gone through it, and it's a painful thing. In fact, um, let me read this passage. Throughout the Old Testament, God identifies his people. In the Old Testament, we see that as the nation of Israel. He identifies his people as his bride. Okay, the covenant relationship. In Ezekiel 16, he says, I made my vow to you, he's talking to Israel, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is God talking to the nation of Israel, saying, I made my covenant with you, I brought you in, you became mine. That's what God did, and he he begins to list all the things he did for them. He clothed them, gave them riches, he gave them food, he gave them status, gave them beauty, all these wonderful things that God is doing for them, but for sake of time, I'm not going to read all those verses. But then we see in verse 15 how Israel responded to God entering this covenant with them and providing all these things for them. Listen to this. This is how Israel responded. But you, Israel, trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on my passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. We can't say the Bible pulls any punches. Very explicit. We see the unfaithfulness of God's people throughout redemptive history. We are an adulterous people. We have taken the good things that God has given us, and we have turned them into God things. We have decided to go after them. We are adulterous, and each time we go after one of these things or something other than God, we initiate a divorce within the covenant relationship. Psychology Today, they point out that divorce is one of the greatest traumas a person can experience. Divorce is one of the greatest traumas a person can experience because they say that when you enter into that marriage covenant, you are 
completely vulnerable to the person. They know you better than anybody else on the planet. And then later on, if divorce is taking place, that person who knows you better than anyone else has rejected you, that's painful. Divorce is one of the greatest traumas that a person can go through. They, even, they say that there are many who, after divorce, experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's that traumatic. Now, according to psychology today, they say the only trauma worse than divorce is the death of a child. Only trauma worse than divorce is the death of a child. God, in his faithfulness, has seen us go after other partners, has seen us claim divorce. But he has made a way for us to be reunited, for us to be seen as faithful covenant partners. But it took the death of his child for that to take place. In order for us to be seen as faithful, the son, the father's only child, needed to die in our place. He needed to represent us perfectly. He needed to fulfill the law, not go after any other covenant partners. And then he needed to pay for our sin. And then we needed to receive his righteousness. All of that is made possible through Christ, which is why, because we as an adulterous people must hold fast to a faithful Savior. That is the only way we can be seen as faithful covenant partners. In Christ, we have the opportunity to be reunited to our covenant partner. That's one of the most beautiful things about marriage. I've had the opportunity to do a couple weddings, but one of the things that I love about marriage is how explicitly it points to this reality, to the gospel. Let me read this. The wedding, if you've ever been in the wedding, you recognize that the groom is up front. Okay? The wedding begins with the groom waiting up front. He has pursued his bride, and he's won her, and all he has to do is wait. When she comes in, everyone stands to stare at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure, white, spotless, and without blemish. They both as the bride and groom, are about to declare that they have no other partners. As they enter the ceremony as two, they walk away as one, hand in hand. Everything that he has is hers, and everything that she has is his. They make promises to each other to never leave or forsake the other, for better or worse. They exchange rings as symbols of those promises, and then afterward they celebrate with a meal, oftentimes with a lot of bread and wine. And then what we recognize is that sometimes those greatest things, like a wedding, point to greater things. Flowers point to love, cake to celebration, marriages point to the gospel. God is holy and pure, but we are not. We've been separated from God because of our sin. But God solved this problem by pursuing us through his son. He's pursued his bride the church. And so through his death and resurrection, Christ has paid for her sin. And now anyone who accepts him as their savior, as their Lord, is brought into this covenant. Jesus says, I will never leave you or abandon you. We reply, I will forsake all other gods. Everything that Christ has, his righteousness, his love, the inheritance that he has for his perfect righteousness becomes ours. And everything that we have, our fallenness, our shame, our past, our sin becomes his. 
We receive his perfection. He takes and, pay for, takes and pays for our sin on the cross. And though we were once separated, we are now brought together as one. We celebrate with a meal, bread and wine, the Lord's Supper, which we're getting ready to do. And our union is symbolized with baptism and water. And for all eternity, Jesus' bride is seen by God as beautiful, pure, white, and holy. Marriage, the marriage covenant, points to a greater covenant that we have with Christ. And if you would receive Christ as your Savior, you will be brought into that covenant. We have been adulterous people. We have gone after other gods. We have divorced ourselves from our covenant partner. But through Christ, we can be brought back and we can be seen as perfect. And to be a faithful disciple, to walk faithfully in this, we must receive his teaching. We must see what his word says about these things. We must receive God's design and we must receive God's faithfulness that is displayed in Christ Jesus. Depend on Christ this morning as your faithful covenant representative. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace, for giving us a faithful covenant representative in Christ. Thank you that despite our adultery, despite the ways in which we have gone after others, you have been so patient with us. Help us as a body to be patient with one another, to reflect the patience that you have poured out on us. Help us to understand the gospel in greater ways this morning and to live as faithful covenant partners, to receive what your word says, to receive your design, and to receive the faithfulness that is found in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.